Hello, this is Michael Levitin, and this is episode four of The Tell. So I begin each installment of the live series with a story of my own. This episode includes one of those stories. I don't do that often, and I won't do that much in the future. But I do tell a story at the beginning of every live installment of The Tell. And people often ask me why I have so many stories, because I, I've already told 10 or something. I probably have like 30 more or something crazy. Um, and so I have a few reasons you know, why I end up with a lot of stories. One is that I, I guess I live like a crazy person. I do a lot of unusual things. I was raised by unusual people. So I have a lot of stories of unusual behavior. <laughs> and if you, if you behave in an unusual way, a lot of times people res respond in an unusual way. Um, so that's one reason. But besides that, I, I think that one of the main reasons I have so many stories is because I have the audacity to find my own life interesting. You know, a lot of people have incredibly interesting lives and just don't notice. I will ask someone to do the tell that's an incredibly interesting person who's told me a million great stories, and they'll say they have no stories. I'll have to, like, ask them a bunch of questions and get, get a story out of them. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I, I guess that's interesting, you know, because they just don't notice how interesting their lives are. I think people who write memoir uh, are often afraid that their stories are, are secretly really boring and that they're the only ones who think they're interesting, that they think the stories are interesting just because they're their own. But I, I actually rarely encounter people who, whose stories are boring and they just believe they're interesting. More people think their stories are boring um, and they are really interesting. You know, they, they think the stories are boring just because they're their own. So I always encourage people to, to uh, really recognize how interesting their lives are because <laughs> I think everybody has a lot of stories. So, uh, so this episode uh, has a story by me and then a story by John Romano and a musical performance by O.K. Kaya. This is episode four of The Tell. So it was about six years ago that I cast my first curse. I, I don't have any magical powers or anything. I guess I, I define curse a little differently from a lot of how other people would. Um, and of course, I, my first curse I cast in response to, I was very angry about an internet argument. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's not much you can do to the person on the other side of the internet, you know, who's arguing with you. You don't have much choice. Something like a curse is really the best option. Um, I was getting an argument about a particular instance of someone being murdered by police. I don't even know which one. But, some, but there was somebody murdered by police and people on, on the internet were arguing about it. And somebody made some kind of comment about how anyone who gets murdered by the police deserves it, something like this. You know, I have a hard time letting certain things go, and I have a kind of theory about why. I mean, I have lots of theories about why that have to do with my past. But aside from any of those, just the instinct we have to kind of build our whole ideological structure of our brains and what we care about on like a few basic ideas that are the most important to us, that are like these kinds of rocks at the bottom of a pyramid that we've built of like who we are. And if somebody even brushes against one of these rocks, you feel like the whole thing's gonna fall, and so you just freak out. You know, something like the existence of racism or police brutality, it happens to be one of my rocks. So as soon as somebody says something that says that's not real, I just lose my mind. I just can't, you know, I just lose my mind. Other people, it's like the existence of God is one of their rocks, or, you know, that the world is fair is one of their rocks. Um, or that nothing bad happens to someone good or something like that. That can be a rock that someone can have. I have a number of my own. But so whenever somebody says something, hits one of my, my rocks at the bottom of the pyramid, um, I can't let it hang there. I just go crazy. 
<laughs> okay, so even if it's just a stranger on the internet, you might be driven to extremes. So, <laughs> so uh, this person said something about, um, and it was on a whole thread where a bunch of people were saying things that were driving me crazy. And so I, I responded, I said, I'm sorry, um, you put me in a position to cast a curse upon you and, and your family. Um, I, I, there's no other option because we're on the internet arguing about this. I can't do anything else to you, like actual real-life revenge. I can only cast a curse. So un it's an ironic curse, unfortunately for you. <laughs> you know, you'll be punished in exactly the style of, you know, the, the way you've wronged the world. <laughs> um, so your curse is that you're going to be harassed by police and everyone you love and everyone you know is going to be harassed by police, okay, and abused by police. And as you start to realize you're all being harassed by police, no one will believe you. They'll blame you for the whole thing. And then, of course, your legal problems keep getting bigger and bigger, so you kind of lose your job. You know, you'll have financial problems, which will further ruin your family, until everyone that's associated with your family is all terrified of police. When police show up, they feel nothing but fear and rage, and the more that they try to resist police and say they're being harassed, the worse the police treat them until they're being treated violently and people are being killed. Anyway, and so on. <laughs> okay, so this is your future. The only way you can avoid this curse um, is to recant all that you've said and admit that police brutality is real um, and that this person didn't deserve to be killed and that you will spend your life trying to stop police brutality. <laughs> okay, that was my, my curse. Now, I didn't really expect a response to this. <laughs> you know, I didn't know it. I was just being very angry. <laughs> that's what I, these are the kinds of things I do when I'm angry. Um, but apparently that's what I did. Um, so then uh, the, the guy responded and was like, whoa, yeah, um, wow, you're really funny but that's like a pretty intense thing to say to somebody. And that's like, I'm, I'm actually pretty freaked out. Like, I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, if it happened to me, that would really be awful. So yeah, I guess I have to rethink what I said. Um, you know, sorry about that. Please take back your curse. <laughs> and I was like, wait, really? That's, that's all it took? The first time I ever changed someone's mind on the internet? That's incredible. So then all the people on the thread all were like, LOL, that's amazing. But seriously, that's really intense what you said. And I never thought of it that way. And actually, that would be a horrible fate. <laughs> that's the worst curse I've ever heard. And act, I'm really actually haunted by it. And people kept writing these weird comments about how it had made them rethink the issue. And I was like, that's absurd that that actually had, I mean, because really I cursed them with empathy. <laughs> that was my curse, was that I made them empathize with someone. That's the way I saw it. <laughs> the curse was they had to think about someone who was suffering and how they had helped them to suffer and to continue to suffer. Um, so I realized I, I had to do this all the time. This was the best <laughs> weapon I had on the internet. So every time I got an argument, I would cast a curse. Someone would say, you know, what's all this stuff about people, about health insurance? Like, look, if you can't make money, it's your problem. You deserve to be sick. I'm like, okay, great. Well, unfortunately, I'm in a position to cast a curse on you. <laughs> unfortunately, it has to be an ironic curse where now you're going to be cursed with pestilence and, <laughs> you know, and you'll, everyone you know and love will become sick and have horrible health problems, which first your, your health insurance companies will unfairly refuse to pay for. So you'll then have to sue them. All of your money is going to go to these lawsuits. And of course, you can't work while you're so sick. So you'll fall into poverty. You'll see what it's like to have no money to afford health insurance. Um, and then you'll just get sicker and sicker. And you'll, you'll beg the world to give you some kind of health insurance to take care of. I, like, I just wrote another, the most intense curse I could possibly think of. 
Again, they responded like, whoa, yeah, it never occurred to me that the health insurance company might not pay when they should and what would happen. I never thought about how you could get sick and not be able to work. This is, that's a really horrible curse. Like, you really conjured some horrible things in my mind. Yes, I totally recant what I said. Please don't curse me, LOL, you're so funny. <laughs> you know, all, all of it couched in the LOL, you're so funny, what a weird person you are, I wonder what your story is, kind of. And also, I have to rethink this over and over again. And I was like, I got addicted. I was like, I have to just keep casting curses on the internet all the time. And so suddenly I was doing it like probably once a week or something for like a while. I was just like, every time someone said something horrible, I'd be like, I'm in an unfortunate position. <laughs> and, and they would all recant. And I, and I was like, oh my God, I've solved the world. All you have to do to make people experience empathy is curse them. And it's kind of like in the old school definition of what magic was, you know, like, you know, they call it, you know, uh, all the words associated with writing are magic words. Like spelling has to do with casting spells. Satire is a type of spell you would cast. Casting a satire was supposed to control everyone's minds to make them hate somebody. That's casting a satire. So the original idea of magic was you can put words in an order, you know, in just like some magical order and then give them to the right person at the right time and they could make change happen. You know, so this kind of curse was actually kind of an old school idea of curses where there's no actual supernatural force necessarily. It was just how I could make someone empathize and change their opinion with the magic of words put together in a certain order. Um, so it really was a real curse in my mind. So I was really excited about this. And I was like trying to tell as many people as I could to stop having internet arguments and just start casting curses. Um, so I wrote an essay about it. I was kind of sending it to people to see if I should try to publish this weird essay about casting curses as the best way to change people's minds or like create empathy in the world. And uh, I, I told a bunch of friends about it at a bar and they were all cracking up and they were like, Michael, no, you, you got it all wrong. You don't realize what's happening. You're so, you're so uh, naive and earnest and positive about the world. And I was like, oh no, I wasn't cynical enough. I thought I was being really cynical. Like what could possibly be happening? And they're like, no man, they're all just superstitious. And I was like, no, that couldn't possibly be it. And he's like, no, it's like a chain letter. Everybody always forwards the stupid chain letter. You know, they say whatever, they, they know you're not really cursing them, but they're like, I don't know, maybe he is. Maybe it's real. I better say whatever he wants me to say, and then I'll get out of his curse, potentially. And I was like, that can't be true. That's not possible. And I kept talking to people. And I was like, hey, guys, you, you think they're really empathizing, right? I'm just changing their minds. And everyone was like, no, man, they're just superstitious. They just think they don't know who you are. Maybe you're like a warlock, you know, <laughs> in like his room that's actually capable of cursing their family. They don't care about other people but themselves. They're only worried about the curse being attached to them. They don't care about other people being killed by police or having no health insurance. And I, I got super depressed. I was like, oh, my God, casting curses makes no difference unless it's just to make people do a superficial thing, you know? And I was like, well, you know, maybe you could still use this in some way. Like, maybe you could get people to vote for the right candidate if you had a, uh, you know, a chain letter. If you sent out a chain letter that said there was a curse if you voted for the wrong candidate. And actually, maybe that's how, that's the best way to win an election, is actually just to send out something that really convinces everyone they'll be cursed <laughs> if they vote for the wrong candidate. But yeah, I thought that was a pretty big disappointment that, that uh, I thought there was hope for people that you could just change them um, by forcing empathy with a series of words. But uh, actually, they were just superstitious.
When people ask me why, I'm a stone fucking atheist. I, I have an answer. It's because I went to a really good Catholic prep school. That'll do it, you know. And it has to be a good one. I mean, it wasn't one of these, like, parochial schools. with It was a boys' school in New Jersey taught by brothers of the heart of somebody or other. And, and, uh, and you know... And they had graduate degrees uh, dripping from their cassocks. And I mean, they were, you know, they were smart and they knew what they were doing and they were doing it to us. And, um, <laughs> and I was in the, the, the smart track. I mean, it was a track system, which meant you had, you were with the same guys all day and, uh, you know, went around to different various teachers and, and somebody had screwed up. Somebody had, somebody had given us as a homeroom teacher, a guy named Brother Thomas, this is a big mistake because uh, we were the smart kids. And uh, he was many things, but smart wasn't one of them. This was not, um, this was not his strength. You'll, you'll get a sense of his strength as, as time goes on. But he, he, he was our homeroom teacher, and that meant, and there's where I think the administration made us big. That meant he taught us, he, we had the first class, everybody's first class was religion. And he had to teach religion to us. That's not something you'd wish on your worst enemy. There, and and, and, and if, he had been, if he had been Brother Ronan or Brother Faber or one of these motherfuckers who knew what they were, he could have taken us on. But everything he would dish out, out of his, I could still see it, his brown religion textbook, we just threw back at him. I mean, we just cherished doctrines of the church. One after another ended up shredded on the floor of this classroom. I mean, you know, it was, I mean, yeah, infallibility of the Pope. Yeah, right, infallible. He's a little guinea. He looks like the gold man who drives a truck through the neighborhood to sharpen your mother's knives. There were these vans that used to drive around. Has anybody got their knives to sharpen? That's what the Pope looked like. Infallible? Three persons in one God. Virgin birth? Oh, yeah. That we get. It, it, this poor, he, we, we never gave him a break. And he, you know, he would... He would, he would do his best. He'd, he'd sort of push back a little. And eventually he would say, and I, 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 I promised my wife I wouldn't do the voice, but I've got to do it. He, 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 was, he was such a gentle man. And, and we, even, it was not lost on us. This was a very kind soul who had been fed to the sharks by being given this class, right? But he, but he, he was a very kind man. And when he, the way he used words, it was like he, like he didn't want to quite say them because he was worried they would like fall and hit somebody, hurt somebody. You know, he said, he, Say, oh, oh, I, 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 I'm a little worried about you boys. I'm a little worried about you boys. I, I, I'm going to pray to God for you tonight to get those ideas out of your head. You know, <laughs> he was talking this little sweet way, and 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 he was sweet. He was what I'm going to use a very old-fashioned word, and you know, let the generations separate us as, as they might. But he was what we used to call a sissy. And now I'm not I'm not referring to anything about his sexuality, about which I have no no clue. I'm just talking about a way of carrying himself. And if you are faced with that particular species known as an adolescent boy, a room full of adolescent boys, and this happens to be your, the manner which nature has endowed you with, you're fucked, you're in trouble. <laughs> they can't see around, they're not gonna see around this for your, but, but it was not lost on us, even though we, were, we had all the inherent cruelty of our species, adolescent boys. It was not lost in it. This was a very kind and good man. Even when we would run up, you know, snatch the chalk from his hand and write on the board and show him how wrong he was about, you know, uh, Jesus rising from the dead or something. He, 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 would, he would always just, he, he, he could not 
be angry. He was just, uh, you know, incapable of it. And, and, and you know, to be fair to him and to, to, to St. Augustine's uh, a School for Boys, um, <laughs> there was very little uh, you were not allowed to question. It's something people don't really realize, right? I mean, through this, you know it. And there was no, you could, you know, you, you were allowed to debate. This wasn't exactly debate. It was more like sort of massacring Brother, <laughs> Brother Thomas every morning from eight to nine. But, but you were allowed, I mean, you know, Ace Bixel, my... Uh, uh, debate partner, you know, he, brother, brother Thomas, he said, so if God is everywhere, is God up my asshole? I mean, excuse me, brother, but if God is everywhere, is God, and he, and, and brother Thomas would blush. I mean, he was really capable of a real pink blush. And, 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 and he said, no, brother, I'm serious. But Brix was not serious. He was having a good time. Uh, but I was serious. I had this thing where I really thought that if you wanted me to believe something, you had to show me. You know, you had to. My father used to say, "Had to kick the tires before you bought it." You know, and and so uh, I was his only real serious antagonist on intellectual grounds. I'm sorry to say, and the class, of course, cheered me on. You know, and the time it real, the time I remember most when this really came to. Ahead, uh, my my most outstanding performance and eviscerating this poor, great, and gentle soul um, was after the, the bishop would come once a year uh, to give a talk, and we were all herded into the auditorium, you know, and sit in these little folding chairs, and, and uh, whatever the topic was supposed to be, he'd always end up talking about the evils of jerking off. That was his. He always he would drift. There, it didn't matter where he started out, that would be inevitably, it would come up, he just couldn't help himself. And he didn't realize when he talked about masturbation, he was talking to an audience of experts. <laughs> this, if we knew one thing, aside from, you know, the Yankees' uh, schedule, we knew, uh, we knew something about this. We had a very different attitude toward it than he did. I mean, he seemed to think it was bad for you. Uh, for your body and for your soul, and we actually didn't agree, but, but anyway, it was something he shouldn't have really taken. But he would make the speech, and of course, no one argued with, with the bishop, but, but this one time, the year was 1965, I think, and, and, uh, and, and the Vietnam War was a new thing, and his topic was the war in Vietnam, which of course he dug. Um, it was against godless communism, and it was Jack Kennedy's wars, he said, you know, when Jack Kennedy was hanging in, in our kitchens right next to Pope John the 23rd, all our mothers had John Kennedy in the So he was for it because it was against communism. Of, and he really wanted to tell us about this because some of us were going to college soon and there were these protests starting up. And, you know, he was full of warnings. And I, we heard for the first time, at least to me, it was the first time, what became a cliche you've seen it on bumper stickers and stuff that says, My country, right or wrong. Does that ring a bell? My country, right or wrong. That became a. And I, I couldn't wait to get. Brother Thomas on the ropes tomorrow on this one. This was like, you know, meat had been tossed into my cage. I was just really ready on this. Um, uh, I didn't have an attitude toward the war yet. I would develop one in college, of course, but at this time, but I knew a moral, fat-headed idiocy when I heard it, and my country, <laughs> right or wrong, was... And so, I, so the next morning came, I mean, I hardly got a wink of sleep. I could, you know, and we, we got to class, and I would just, I hit the ground running and stood up and took him on it, you know. 
I just, and I got a big standing O from my friends, I got to say. They, were, they had my back, you know. I, I, it went as would have been predicted. And four brothers come and say, well, that's very good, John, but, you know, I, uh, uh, I'm going to have you sit down now, and I'm going to pray for you tonight, because, you know, that was his go-to position, that he had to pray for us, because we were so, and, uh, but he had a surprise in store for me. Came a few days later. I was still collecting congratulations from my teammates. Um, and I came and he had a, he said, I got, I got a little something for you. Got a little present for you. Now I'm worried. And uh, he had a bunch of magazines and they were tied in string. I was kind of glad it wasn't, you know, ribbon. But it was tied in a string and he, and he gave it to me. And it was a bunch of, uh, uh, it was a, a, a pile of, of magazines that were, uh, Commonweal magazine is what they were called. And you, I'll just tell you something about this. These were left-wing Catholic magazines. They were written by like the Daniel Berrigan type Catholic, the, the nuns and priests who got famous for like dousing selective service files with blood later and going to jail for it, like Dorothy Day, you know. Who's, in other words, the left-wing Catholic wing, which is, you forget about, but it's always there. Now, Brother Thomas I don't know what he read, but I know he didn't read that, and he couldn't. There was he didn't like a word of what was in there, and he told me he said, I'm, "I don't, we don't, I really don't agree with what's in here, but but I, I think you'll like it a lot." <laughs> and I was dumbstruck. I'm still dumbstruck. In a long life, as you can tell, um, I have never been capable. I like arguing. I have never been capable of that kind of uh, generosity. Uh, the grace to ar arm an enemy with arguments to use against you. As if he wasn't having a bad enough time with guys like me. He was actually, because he saw my sincerity, my passion, how interested I was, my need, he just wanted to make sure I had the wind in my sails. So he handed me this pile of magazines with which, by reading with which, I could, you know, cut them to shit even, you know, even better. And I've never seen an act so generous, and though we went our separate ways, you know, and I left school eventually and went to college and took my own ways and left the church and all that behind and, and, and stuff, and, uh, and I would, when I look back, I tell this kind of joke and make people laugh, and, but it was always in the back of my head that this guy had done something so beautiful and so outside of what I myself or my friends uh, with our big brains and big mouths were capable of that I always had a feeling it was really something kind of wonderful about it, and I never could put my finger on it and never talk about it. As the years rolled by, I, I did eventually, was eventually lured into a trip back there. They were showing a movie I made, and we wanted me to hang around and talk to the students. But uh, it was fun uh, to show the films to the kids. And it had this, the movie had a couple of scenes. It was a movie with Anne Hesh and... and uh, Ed Harris called The Third Miracle, and a priest has an affair with a daughter of a woman who's up for sainthood, and, and, and they, they become lovers, and they have sex. And I was really excited to show it to these kids because I wanted to go back to that same room where the bishop was always giving us a hard time and, you know, show them this pretty sexually explicit movie and <laughs> get a little of my own back, you know. Of course, it didn't work. I mean, teenagers now, I don't even care who they are, they, it's very hard to scandalize, you, you know, a couple of scenes like this, nothing compared to the world they live in and, and see. But it was fun for me. And while I was there, the only thing I kind of indulged myself in is I ran into a guy in a suit who looked familiar, and he had been one of the faculty then, but now he, he'd left the order. He was just a civilian. In fact, he had a couple of kids. And, 
I said, hey, whatever happened to Brother Thomas? Because I knew they'd been roommates or something. He said, uh, well, he said, you know, he, uh, he's not, you know, he's gone from here a long time. And I said, yeah, I said, well, you can tell me more than that. And I could see he didn't know whether to trust me with the story, but he did, and I'm going to trust you with it. Here's what happened. Something wet my whistle here somewhere. You're going to drink? <laughs> Just wet my mouth. Thank you. So he told me the following story, and I told it to Michael, and here I am. In 1994, in Rwanda, where the brothers had some mission schools. That's where Brother Thomas ended up. This is where the Hutus and the Tutsis um, uh, cut each other to pieces. A million people died in the space of four months. And Brother Thomas uh, ran a school for girls uh, in the uh, jungle. And uh, the village nearby got decimated, and then, then the, I don't know whether it's the Hutu and the Tutsis, and I'm not sure whether they can tell themselves apart, but I'll tell you, they, um, they killed the people around the school, and Brother Thomas heard them coming. And uh, he went outside, and he took the body of one of the school's guards, who is obviously dead, and dragged him inside. And out of his wounds... Uh, Brother Thomas scooped blood with his hands, and he smeared it on the girls, you see. He ran around smearing it on the girls. He said, now, now, now you lie down here. You be very still. And he put it on himself, too, and he laid down. And sure enough, the soldiers came to the school windows. They looked inside, and they saw the girls covered with blood and lying there, and they figured somebody had done the job for them. Brother Thomas said, okay, girls. That, I could hear him say, you know, he said, that's good, girls, that's good. But then he looked and he saw that right outside the windows, the soldiers decided to camp for the night. So he crawled from girl to girl <laughs> through the night. You doing okay there, sister? You doing okay, little girl? Okay, they're going to go away in the morning. You're going to be fine now. You just, you just sleep now. See, I have to do the voice. And uh, the next morning, the soldiers broke camp and left. And uh, according to... Uh, Kevin, the guy who formerly Brother Thomas, he said, uh, that was fine. He said, yeah, Brother Thomas had a nervous breakdown a few days later, and he now lives in Queens with his father. But uh, that's where he ended up. And then recently I heard that he passed away. But uh, I just think of, of me and Bix and Johnny Rossi and all the guys sitting around in school thinking that, you know, we were the cool guys and we were looking at a sissy. <laughs> and... Uh, Look back and realize that uh, you know that was the hero, you know that was the uh, that was the, that was the cool guy, and uh, and uh, even a, a stone atheist like me has to say I bet his faith and all had something to do with it. But whatever got him there, that's who he really turned out to be. So Når du er rolig, vet du at jeg ser på, jeg gransker deg nærmest, du holder deg inne. Noen her ute hører at du banker på, jeg hører deg puste. Kan jeg få nå dig nå? Jeg gransker dig nærmere. 
just heard a live performance by OK Kaya, her song Durer in Norwegian. She's from Norway. I would definitely recommend looking up OK Kaya on the internet. She has beautiful music videos for many beautiful songs. Before that, you heard a story by John Romano, who's a great screenwriter. He writes lots of TV and movies, but his most recent script is for the movie American Pastoral, an adaptation of Philip Roth's novel. I think it's still out in theaters. It came out recently. You should go see that. And uh, then there's news uh, about the Tell Live series. We've been doing it at National Sawdust in Brooklyn for the last year, but we're moving now to the Jane Hotel in the West Village. So we're going to do it in this big ballroom there. That's very exciting. So our first installment at the Jane Hotel is December 11th, Sunday, December 11th. So if you want to go and you know figure out how to RSVP and all those kinds of things, you can go to my website, michaellevitson.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetellstories. Um, you could follow me on Instagram at michaellevitson, things like that. You can find us, and it'll be great to see you at the Jane Hotel on December 11th. So uh, thank you to all the usual characters, Natalia Schween and Gabriel Galvin, for co-producing The Tell. Uh, and the podcast. And also you may notice that we've been doing a different version of our theme song written by a fool for every episode. We're going to have different people singing it, different people playing it uh, over the future episodes. Um, this version that you're about to hear has John Coward um, playing keyboard, and I'm singing this one. Um, but thank you to John Coward for, for playing on this. <laughs> He's playing beneath me right now. Uh, so thanks for listening. This was The Tell, episode four. You're quite a character 
written 